It's good seeing you. Thank you for being here and uh, just being with each other. It's great being with you. We're going to be in 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We are going through books of the Bible uh, as we study the Word, as we as I and the other pastors have the opportunity to preach the word, we go through each book, hopefully uh, with the goal of finishing the entire Bible and then doing it all over again, and then doing it all over again, hopefully the generation that outlives us and outlives that generation, and just keep doing it until the Lord comes. So we are in Second Peter. Second Peter, the theme is stated at the beginning and the very end of the book. Grace and peace, verse 2 of chapter 1, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And then the very end of the book, the last verse of the book, it says, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that theme of this book relates to the knowledge of God. Know God. What does that mean, know God? Well, if you were here last week, as we looked at the first section of 2 Peter, we gave a definition, a working definition, of knowledge. Knowledge is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate. It's informed and intimate. It results from conversion and growth. Okay? So knowledge is ultimately a relationship. It's more than data, but it's not exclusive of data. That's why we say it's informed. But it's not just simply a relationship based on data. It's a relationship based on affection. It's a relationship based on intimacy, which is why we say it's an intimate relationship. And it's with our God, Lord Jesus Christ. It began at salvation. It began when we were made, when we were converted from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, and it's growing. And so what Peter is doing is he's writing to these believers in an area of the world called Asia Minor, and he's writing to believers who are facing a lot of adversity, especially adversity at the hands of false teachers. He wrote one letter to them already, and these Christians were facing adversity from those who were persecuting them, those who were bringing them even to the hands of those who might take their lives. But here in 2 Peter, he's writing to them as they're faced with adversity when it comes to false teaching or false doctrine. And so by having a true knowledge of God, they are able to grow in grace and also be able to withstand that false teaching. So today we're going to be in verses 12 through 21. And really what I want to leave with you this evening is this, that the true knowledge of God is grounded in the Word of God. The true knowledge of God is grounded in or on the Word of God. Last week we saw how the true knowledge of God impacts our values, our behavior, and even our future. But today, we're going to see how the true knowledge of God is grounded on the Word of God. So let's look here in verse 12. We'll read verses 12 through 15 and move forward. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So in these four verses, I want us to see here a part of that intimate, informed relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ, the true knowledge of God. In particular, I want us to see how an informed relationship will require for us to be reminded of what we already know. Okay, that's our first point this evening. An informed relationship, that's one aspect of the true knowledge of God. An informed relationship will require for us to be reminded of what we already know. Now, 
If you think of building a relationship with someone, you think of that being an ongoing thing. Like, I can't really say I have a relationship with someone if I've met them once. I don't think you could either. If you meet someone once, even if you have a long conversation with them, let's say you're doing some traveling, and you're in the airport, and then you get on the plane, and you don't put in your earbuds, which, you know, earbuds is like that universal code on airplanes, don't talk to me, right? So you got the earbuds, but you don't have the earbuds in, and neither does the person next to you. And so you strike up a conversation, and you get to know a lot about each other, why you're going to the same destination, or what you're doing. Sometimes even sharing a lot about yourself, your family. You might take out your phone and show photographs. At the end of that flight, it may have been very pleasant, but I doubt you could say you have a relationship with them. People that you have a relationship with are people that you have ongoing contact with. And it stands to reason that if we say we have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to have ongoing contact with them in his word. Now, his word, admittedly, is somewhat limited. I say it's limited not from the standpoint that this is all he can give us, but this is all that we have right now. So if I start in Genesis 1 and I finish in Revelation chapter 22, I've gotten it. And I can start again. Where are you going with this, Pastor Mike? Where I'm going with this is, a lot of our learning from the standpoint of our relationship with our Savior is going to be by way of reminder. By way of reminder. We see that three different times in verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, Peter says this, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And then verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He doesn't use the word remind, but that's basically what he's talking about. What is he reminding them? Well, he's reminding them, first of all, of these things. What are these things? Well, at the beginning of verse 12, he says, therefore. And anytime you have the word therefore, it's therefore a reason. It's therefore because of what was just said. What was just said was in verses 3 through 11. Namely, that they were to value everything had God given them for life and godliness. In verse 3, everything that God had given them including the exceeding great and precious promises. They were to be reminded, they were reminding these things of the character traits of a believer that should be increasing in verses 5 through 7. Now add to your faith moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. It was these character traits of a believer that should be increasing. And they were to be showing themselves to be fruitful and useful in the true knowledge of God. And then also reminding them of the assurance of salvation by one's relationship with God and the perseverance that comes from the hard work of verses 5 through 7. You say, well, wait a second. Didn't you preach on that last week? And that's the point. The point is, Peter was going to make it a point of reminding them of what he had already told them. And not only that, look at verse 12. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You know this stuff, but I'm going to tell you again. And I'm always going to be ready to tell you. Not only do you know this, but you're firmly established in them. The, established, the truth is established and present within you. Can I tell you, the theme of remembering is a really interesting theme if you were to trace it through the entirety of the Bible. You know the word remember occurs, or a derivative you know, words that, that basically can be translated remember, occurs over 250 times in the Bible. Remember, 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 remember. In the Old Testament, the most common use of the word remember 
is basically a mindfulness or command to be mindful of previously made covenants or promises. Interestingly enough, guess who receives the most commands to remember in the Old Testament? God does. In the Old Testament, God is actually the one who is commanded, and I say commanded in air quotes just because man is not really commanding God to do anything, but he's invoking God to remember what he had already promised them. Remember your covenant. Remember your justice. Remember your love. In the New Testament, that word remember is bringing something or someone to mind, often with the result of acting on what was remembered. So really, to remember is more than simply bringing something to mind or basic mindfulness. Okay, it's in my mind. I remember. Like, you remember that time? Oh, yeah, I remember. That's really not what's being talked about. What's being talked about is a call to action. So when Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, he's not simply making sure that if they were given a pop quiz on doctrine, that they'd get five out of five. No. He was calling to mind these things because it would be an encouragement, it would be an exhortation for them to act on those things. And so an informed relationship will require for us to be reminded of what we already know, not simply so that we can have these facts, but so that we can live in light of these facts. This relationship is an informed one, but it doesn't just end there. I mean, think of that. A relationship that you might have with someone where you find out something about them, and it doesn't impact your behavior at all. Guys, you're trying to woo a woman, and you know she's allergic to peanuts. And so you have a dessert when you take her out to eat, and it has peanuts in it. Bad move. The content is there. The application is not. Now, that's silly, but I think it also speaks to why we're here tonight. Because I doubt I'm going to tell you anything you haven't heard. So why tell you? So you can, I don't know, answer a Jeopardy question? So that, you know, you can have more data? No. It's an informed aspect of a relationship with the Lord. Thus, Hebrews 13, 7 is salient. When the author of Hebrews tells the, these believers, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, reminders are good when they affirm what's already true. But reminders are necessary when they come from someone whose time is short. Look at verse 13. Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter says, I consider it right as long as I'm with you in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. Peter, I'm sorry, yes, Peter says, the laying aside of my earthly dwelling was imminent. So you say, how does he know that? Well, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. How did that happen? Did Peter have a vision? Actually, I think we can answer that question. Keep your fingers here and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. In verses 15 through 17, we have this well-known interaction between uh, Peter and Jesus, where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. You know? But then in verse 17... When he says, do you love me for the third time, Peter was grieved. And he says, you know that I love you. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, 
you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, fortunately, John the narrator answers that question, verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now, from what I understand, when Peter is writing 2 Peter, he's in his 60s or 70s. How would you like to live with that knowledge for a few decades? Your Savior, your Lord, the one you follow, has told you how you're going to die. It won't be something that you like. It won't be something that you want. Peter says, I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. And so, if I can make a comparison, it's as if he knows his time is about to come and he's kind of like that grandpa that keeps telling his grandkids the same thing over and over again. And the grandkids rolled their eyes and say, oh, that's grandpa, I know. But why does grandpa say that? Because it's really, really important and he wants his grandkids to get it. And so Peter knows his time's about to end. So I'm going to remind you of these things. The true knowledge must be regularly informed. And then finally, reminders are vital if our faith is to outlive us. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. If you notice, verses 12 through 15, Peter uses a lot of future tense. I will be ready to remind you. I will also be diligent. He's using the future tense. In other words, Peter was presently reminding them, and he would continue to remind them, and he would even hopefully provide a way that they'd be reminded even after he was gone, i.e., writing. And in a really cool way, you and I are kind of a partial fulfillment of what's going on here. Because he's still reminding us about 2,000 years later. We're reading what he's writing to be reminded. This was a reminder, even though they've been established in the truth. So didn't Peter trust them? Yes, he trusted them. He was confident of where they were. But the fact of the matter is, is that believers forget and forget easily. In fact, as Peter demonstrates in this passage, believers, if you think about it, believers need to be reminded that they need to be reminded. It's kind of like one of those, okay, it's the end of Sunday. I'm going into the next week, so don't twist my brain that much. But seriously, we have to be reminded. We know we need to be reminded, but we actually have to be reminded of that. Why? Because we forget. We forget so easily. Reminding, the memory, remembering, forgetfulness. This is, again, a theme that's traced through God's word. You think about national Israel. They had some of the most incredible events take place right before their very eyes. This morning I was talking to my, our, our Sunday school group about how Israel walked through the Dead Sea with water Separate. I mean, like Moses parted the sea. God performs this miracle, and they're walking through it. You think you'd remember that? Yeah. Except three days later, Psalm 106 tells us they forgot. It wasn't that it wasn't like, oh, man, I don't even remember that happening. It was that they were complaining about God not providing them water. Their hearts were hard. That's what it means that they forgot. It wasn't that there was a lack of data. It's that there was a lack of disposition to what they knew. So Peter was aware of these saints who were firmly established in the truth. He was, firmly, he was, he was very much aware of the onslaught of false teaching that would seek to erode that foundation. And they needed to be reminded and they need to be reminded again. And so do you, and so do I. You know, Pastor Tim, every once in a while, he says, it's never too late to do right. Right? We hear that, and we say, amen. I will say, it's never too late to remember. It's never too late to remember. Look at the example of Peter, the author. 
You want to talk about a guy who needed to remember? How many times did Jesus tell Peter and the other disciples, I'm going to be delivered up, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again? And when it all happened, it was as if they had never been told. Peter, you're told at least four times. Matter of fact, the day before, Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. I mean, if the Messiah told you that, don't you think that would stick in your brain before the cock crows, before the next, you know, day? This is going to happen? And Peter says, no, 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 no. And yet it happened. And we'd like to think, you know what, after the resurrection, after all this, you know, Peter preaches at Pentecost. This is a, this is a different guy. He is being used by God. But even then, we read in Galatians chapter 2, Peter forgot what the essence of the church was. The essence of the church is not based on nationality. And yet he made a very, very big deal of the Judaizers, of the Jews, to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And it was Paul who needed to correct him. From what we read in Galatians 2, it was public. Peter was a pretty forgetful guy. But so are you, and so am I. Peter was the poster child of the need and the value of being reminded of what he had already been taught. And if being informed is an essential part of true knowledge of God, which I would say it is, then remembering and being reminded is an essential part of learning. If you've had the opportunity to teach, do you just teach things once? Or do you remind your students? If you're a parent, do you only have to speak once? I know my parents did, but they're kind of the outliers, you know? <laughs> I didn't say with me, maybe my brothers, but certainly not with me. Oh, come on, did you think there's, oh, come on. No, you have to say it over and over and over and over again. In fact, Peter, John, Paul, Jude, all of these men wrote on one occasion or another about the value of what they were writing and how it was not new. In fact, I think as believers, there should be red flags when someone comes along and says, here's something new. Especially when it comes to God's word. I've seen this in the Bible. No one's ever seen it before. Ding, 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 ding. Red flag alert. Okay? That's exactly what was going on with these false teachers. Can I also tell you that as growing believers, we should also have red flags when we can walk into or enter into the proclamation or the teaching of the Bible and immediately arrive at the conclusion, I've heard this before. In fact, when it comes to making disciples, boy, that's a really dangerous place to be. When someone sees God's word and say, I've read this already. I know this already. Can we just skip through this? Man, there have been people I've been able to interact with here at Grace who've been saved longer than I've been alive, and then they study the basics of the gospel, and it's so enriching, it's so living, and that shouldn't be surprising because it's God's word. No, we need to be reminded. You know, I think of uh, just this past month. I don't have the opportunity personally to attend men's prayer breakfast every month. But I try to make it a few times a year. And this past month, um, Seth Hobie, uh, a 17-year-old, spoke. And, and he gave the devotional. And he spoke from Hebrews chapter 10. And it was a relatively familiar passage. But when he spoke, he, he basically said, I'm just working this out myself, so I want to share with you why we go to church. And his two points are, we go to church because of devotion to God, and we go to church because of devotion to one another. And it was seven minutes long. And man, was that wonderful. From a 17-year-old. What a blessing. And you know what? He handled the passage well. Everything that he shared, I was just making sure that wasn't the whole, you know. Okay. Is that a fire truck? Yeah. Okay, okay. Just making sure. I, I, yeah, so that's good. Amen. 
It was something that was memorable. But you know what? I thank the Lord that it wasn't something that was brand new. It was exactly what those men needed to hear in that moment, and it was a blessing. I venture to say you all can recall instances where you have been simply blessed by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Not because it was new, but because it was true. Okay? In the context of 2 Peter, those who are susceptible to false teaching are those who desire to hear something they have not heard before or something they don't already know. Now, I want to make a slight qualification on this, and that's this. There is a difference, though, in teaching something new and teaching something in a fresh way. One commentator put it this way, you can say the same thing, but sometimes people need to hear it in a different way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not that you're trying to reinvent doctrine or put information in there that's not in there. You know, my brother is a math teacher, and uh, he makes this joke that when he teaches basic math, you know, when I say basic math like arithmetic, you know, he'll have a class and he tries to show them, uh, you know, along the way how to do those particular operations, just basic operations. And sometimes it's so basic you really don't know how to say it another way. So he'll lead them through it, and if they don't get it, he says the exact same thing, just says it a little bit louder. And then you just kind of teach the same thing. You just say it louder. You're really not saying anything different. You're just different volume. And then eventually they either just submit or whatever. <laughs> Listen, teaching God's word is not like that. And it may be that when we are reminded of something, it kind of feels like we're hearing it for the first time because perhaps it's been spoken in a fresh way. And I would say for those of us who are responsible for teaching God's word, this is not an excuse to be lazy when it comes to preparation. That when it comes to preparing God's word and, oh, I've taught this one before, so whatever illustrations I'm going to use, whatever teaching tools I'm going to use, whatever particular anecdotes that I'm going to use, got it, we're good. And then it just really becomes like reciting the Gettysburg Address. It's a speech. It's not the living and active God's word. So, though we have the responsibility of being reminded that's not to say that the Word of God ever becomes stale. The true knowledge of God is a relationship that is informed, informed many times by what we're called to remember, by what God's Word says, even when we may already be familiar with what God says. But that relationship is not only an informed relationship, it's an intimate relationship. Here in verses 16 through 21, Peter pulls back the veil on his own personal experiences with the Lord. Let's read verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance, made from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We said that the relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ requires us to be reminded of what we already know. Thus, it is an informed relationship. Verses 16 through 21, we see this relationship is also intimate insofar as Peter has these personal experiences with the Lord. But can I tell you, he doesn't arrive at the conclusion that we might expect. You see, if we saw what Peter saw, and if we heard what Peter heard, we might be inclined to, to simply say, just trust me. I was there. I saw it. In fact, our Roman Catholic friends, if they are correct, that's probably what he should have said, given the amount of authority that they ascribed to him. Right? Trust him. 
But you know what Peter's saying in this passage? Trust the Scriptures. Trust the Scriptures. And so an intimate relationship will require for us to have a greater trust in God's Word and to submit our experiences to it. Kind of wordy, so let me say this again. An intimate relationship, that true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, will require for us to have a greater trust in God's Word and to submit our experiences to it. Now, first of all, Peter's personal experience testified to an intimate relationship with the Lord. Look at what he saw. He saw the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made by the majestic glory. So Peter was an eyewitness. He was an earwitness too. He saw it all. In fact, time doesn't allow us, but we could look back to the account of the transfiguration. That's what this is talking about. The transfiguration, where only Peter, James, and John are there. They're kind of drowsy-eyed. They're kind of sleepy. But then all of a sudden, they see the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear the Lord Jesus Christ talk about his impending removal or impending uh, departure. They see Moses and Elijah. And Luke chapter 9 says that Peter pipes up, not really knowing what he's talking about. Those are the words of Luke saying, it's good for us to be here. Let's just put up shacks and, and hang out. And instead, God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That was quite a remarkable experience. And Peter told of that. And you know what? It wasn't really believed by everybody. In fact, we see this in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Why would he say that unless someone was accusing him of concocting a cleverly devised tale? This was an accusation made against Peter in light of the personal experiences that he had shared. What were these fables? Like I said before, the transfiguration. But also... Keep your finger here and turn to chapter 3 of the same book. Chapter 3. Verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mockings, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? You see, looking back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not know clever, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the cleverly devised tales that the false prophets were attacking was the fact that Jesus was coming back. Okay, he died, got it. He resurrected? Eh, not sure about that, but whatever. He's coming back? <laughs> whatever. And in fact, they're mocking him for saying as much. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. When I shared with you this personal interaction, this personal experience, it wasn't a cleverly devised fable. And interestingly enough, this is exactly what the false teachers do. Again, keeping your finger here in 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, look just over the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 3. I'm sorry, look at verse 2. Many will follow these false teachers' sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They were the ones concocting cleverly devised tales. Not Peter. So that being said, Peter's personal experience testified to this intimate relationship with the Lord. Peter was an eyewitness to what the Lord had revealed in his glory. But Peter's intimate relationship with the Lord ultimately found its source not just in that experience. Though we could probably say, in Peter's case, that was enough. 
If you hear God's voice from heaven, you see the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. That should be enough. But Peter says, there is something else. Peter's intimate relationship with the Lord found its source in Scripture. Look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now listen, eyewitness experience is valuable. That's how we live. I mean, seriously, we live by eyewitness experience. In the court of law, it's valuable to have eyewitness experience. If you've ever testified in court, you know that when someone says they saw something, that's evidence for one side or the other. That person committed a crime. I saw them do it. Ooh, looks bad for him. Eyewitness experience is not a bad thing. And Peter's saying, no, it's not worth anything. But what Peter is saying is that experience can be a two-edged sword. Peter's experience was one of a kind, and it was truly divine and accurate. But in another sense, God's word is superior to any human experience, especially when we consider the experiences of people who arrive at conclusions that are unbiblical. And that's what the false teachers were doing. We have false teachers in our day that would hold to experiences that they say they've had, and they arrive at unbiblical conclusions. You know, there was a time where, and I, I think at some level there still is a level of popularity of, of what some call heaven tourism books, where people have either near-death experiences, or they have a vision, and they are ascended into heaven, and they see their loved ones, and they see Jesus, and they had this interaction, and now they come back to earth, and they write about it, and they tell about it, and they garner a large following. I can't say that they didn't have an experience. I don't know, but what I do know is 99% of what I have read contradicts the Bible at the least, and at the most, it undermines the Bible. Why is heaven real? Because someone that I know went there or because the Bible tells me so? And what Peter is saying here is we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Now there's quite a bit of debate as to what Peter's saying in verse 19. Is prophecy made more sure by Peter's experience? Or is prophecy more sure than Peter's experience. And there is a, a debate, quite a big debate between those who you know, study this out. Is Peter saying, okay, you have experience, but then you have prophecy which heavily outweighs it? Or do you have prophecy is true, and you have it being made more true or more valid by the experience? Well, Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was not contradictory to Scripture. And it was appropriate for him to reference his experience there. But it didn't serve as the exclusive authority. Peter didn't say, trust me, it happened. Take it to the bank. No. The scriptures are certain as they will serve as the guide for those who will continue until Christ's return. Look there at the end of verse 19. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. The lamp shining in a dark place. This is a picture of what we read in Psalm chapter 119, verses 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. At the very least, what we can say about verse 19 is that Peter's experience was legitimate and true, and God's word transcribed by human authors is also true. But since none of us are having Peter-like experiences on the Mount of Transfiguration, what are we left with? We're left with this. And you know what? That's just fine. Amen. I don't have, and I don't expect to have, any Transfiguration-like experiences in my lifetime. Unless Christ comes. And then I'll be with him. But... If I don't, I have something that is just as certain, just as certain, the prophet, prophesied word of God. God's word is superior to any experience, 
even when our, quote, uh, conclusions may be biblical. One commentator put it this way, Peter's ranking scripture over experience, the prophetic word scripture is a more complete, a more permanent, and more authoritative, and more authoritative than the experience of anyone. Why is that the case? Well, verse 20 says this, the scriptures, unlike personal experience, is not subject to private interpretation. Look at verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I can have an experience, but guess what? I'm a fallen person. I have a sin nature. So how I interpret and relay that experience is going to be flawed. This is a basic tenet of science. Okay? That science is the observation of the physical world. An observation, you collect data, you interpret the data, but guess what? People make mistakes. And so while at one point in time, a lot of people interpreted the earth to be flat, and now they're interpreting the same data as the earth is round. Okay? People make mistakes. Data can be misinterpreted. Guess what? Scripture is not a matter of private interpretation. It wasn't a cleverly devised tale by men in order to promote their agenda. Secondly, Scripture... The scripture is authoritative over human experience because it is the product of both God and man. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So man and God were fully involved in the writing of scripture. Okay? So there are some that might say, well, the Bible is just God's word. If it is God's word, then man was just kind of like Siri. You know, where God speaks, and then the text arrives. So God is speaking, and it's just this mindless, uh, that's not it. This verse says, holy men, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men spoke. So man has an involvement here. But what did they speak? They spoke from God. Human beings and God were fully involved. There was no divine dictation, nor was there simply human writings based on human intellect or interpretation. Both were necessarily and fully involved in the writing of the prophecies and by extension, God's word, the Bible. This is a classic text for the inspiration or the God-breathing of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Jesus says in John 17, 17, God's word is truth. So does that mean that we just don't pay any attention to our experience? No. But if our experience points to a conclusion that really is biblical, then we praise the Lord, but we remember that the Bible is authoritative and our experience affirms its authority. We give testimony of how God saved us, right? That's a personal experience. Should we not give it? Because it's not authoritative as God's word. No, it affirms the truth of God's word. We praise the Lord for that. Remember the cleverly devised tales of verse 16? Though seemingly silly, this could be exactly what future young believers would think about Peter's personal testimony. Which leads us to the third reason why scripture is authoritative over personal experience. Is that scripture outlives our personal experience. The apostles were dying off. John was the last one. After that, what do we have? Do we have eyewitnesses? No, but we have God's word. And that's all right. I value my experiences insofar as I've learned God's word. And I would say you do too. We learn God's word. We see it put into practice. We see God blessing. But guess what? They're going to get forgotten. Even if we journal them, someone's going to lose that journal. God doesn't forget them. We know that. But we can tell them to our kids. They're going to forget them. We can share them in a testimony service. Man, I'll tell you what. We had testimonies this morning. Some of our Bible studies. I'd venture to say we've forgotten them already. We've certainly forgotten the ones on Wednesday, and that's not even a week away. Personal experiences are valuable, but they're going to be outlived. The Word of God is true, and it will outlive us. And we thank the Lord for that. 
Scripture does not die with us, and it will not be forgotten. So going back to that initial uh, a statement of, of what Peter could have said from his personal experience, trust me. Perhaps some of you have heard these words as you grew up in your religion. Or maybe you grew up in a religion where you were encouraged, just trust me. Just trust me. And as you grew, you perhaps listened to that priest or you listened to that pastor, whatever. You took him at his word and you followed along. But for many of you, there were questions that kept coming up. Oh, you're saying this, and I'm supposed to trust you, but why do you do that? Why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that that, that the church teaches this? And, and why is it that maybe one leader of the church 200 years ago says this, but now, and oh, by the way, he was you know, speaking you know, on behalf of God, and they took it like God's word, but now you have this other person who's saying literally the exact opposite, and he's speaking, does God, does God change? What's going on here? And so then we get the opportunity to, to start reading the Bible and evaluating those religious leaders based on the Bible and seeing inconsistencies and say, wait a second, I'm reading this and I'm seeing this and they don't match. What's going on here? As you read the Bible, you find inconsistencies perhaps, and you ask those questions, and we would say, that's a good thing, right? We don't criticize the Bereans in Acts 17 for studying the Bible and holding an apostle to account. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. This isn't me. This is the Apostle Paul, and yet the Bereans are studying the Scriptures to see whether or not what he's saying is in fact the case. Should we be afraid then when we get the tough questions or if we have the tough questions? Should we? Because what I see here from God's Word is that truth is on our side. When we have God's Word and we have and we do have it, what do we have to fear? And as we help others learn God's word, be it in our family, be it a brother and sister in Christ, and as we dig into the word, yes, there is an element where we want to trust. I'm not invalidating trust. But there's also a sense to where let's look at the word together. How I've seen this play out in one particular group that I am overseeing is, is this. So, so I have a group that, that I lead here at Grace. Uh, they are 18 to early 30s. Many of them have been saved for a while. Many of them haven't been saved for a long time. And what we've started to do is we, we have these times where we'll go over to someone's house and um, we bring up a topic. Uh, we've done this probably four or five times in the past couple years. Uh, the first time we did it, it was in relationship to worship music. Uh, the time after that, it was in relationship to a podcast uh, where a United Methodist minister was talking about social justice. Uh, the time after that, it was in relationship to the Christian and alcohol and Christian liberty. The time after that, uh, it was in relationship to homosexuality, the transgender uh, movement and, and Christians dealing with same-sex attraction. And then most recently, a couple weeks ago, it was in relationship to why you live, or where do you live and why you live there. Like, you know, 23, 24, 25-year-olds, you know, living at home, is that okay? Should they move out? And I say this because, you know, we get a lot of tough questions. And, and the Bible doesn't necessarily answer every question in exact detail, but what the Bible doesn't speak about, it speaks to. So the Bible speaks to all of life. And as we encourage you to value this book, be it as husbands or wives, or be it as parents, or be it as just Christians and those helping to teach other people in God's word, we trust that you will trust this word and that you will be able to not just say, trust me, it's somewhere in there, but say instead, let's look at God's word and see what it says. And not be afraid of that. And to be further equipped in that. And so that we might grow in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is yet another advantage of studying the Bible with someone else. We have the opportunity to build a relationship with another believer. To be 
we would say discipled by them or to disciple them and then be able to see what God's word has to say about seemingly difficult, maybe very really difficult issues. So we see that having a true knowledge of God, the intimate, informed relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the byproduct of our salvation, and that's growing, that true knowledge is grounded on God's Word, the Bible. But I also hope that as you're seeing the implications of this true knowledge with God, that true knowledge also extends to one another as well. I mean, we ought to want to have an intimate and informed relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ that's growing, right? So it stands to reason that in the body of believers, we're also growing in our desire to have an informed and intimate relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ that is growing. That we might be able to help point them to a greater, a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we will see how this true knowledge of God enables us to identify those who are not teaching what is true. Because the best way to identify false teaching is knowing the true teaching, isn't it? Amen. And so that's what we'll see in 2 Peter chapter 2. But I trust that as we look in God's word, that we are emboldened by God's word to be able to be satisfied in the truth of God's word and our relationship to it, and then as we grow in our relationship with one another as we handle God's word, right? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. I pray for each person that has an impact on others. Each person in this room that handles the word with others. That they might value your word the way you value your word. These aren't cleverly devised fables. It's not a self-help book. This is your word. And as a result, it speaks to all of life. And God, admittedly, there are difficult things. Peter says as much. There are difficult things. Yet, Lord, we have your spirit. We have other saints. And, Lord, we have the opportunity to study it and to study it in a deeper way, not simply so that we can know more facts, but so that we can know you better. That when we see you for who you are, we will be like you. That's, that's the whole point. Becoming holy, becoming like Christ. Lord God, increase our desire for this book. May it not be boring and stale. May it not be just a textbook for those who are in an academic arena? Would it not simply just be a bunch of facts? And Lord, would we not measure ourselves simply by how much data we know, but rather how you know us and we know you and how we are loving you and loving one another? Lord God, it's a tall order. It's a hard thing, but there is nothing more valuable. As Paul said, that nothing compares to the greatness, the superiority of knowing you. Would we align our values with Paul and with your word? In Christ's name, amen.